0: Alright, I invite you to stand again. Please turn in your Bibles to Malachi, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the last verse of chapter 2 through the end of the book. If you have the Pew Bible that is on, pi- on page 802. Malachi 2.17 through Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in the house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts." Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask now that you would light our way, God, that you would show us your glory as we dive into your word, God, that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are, to know you, God, and to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we finally made it. We've come to the end. Counting last summer when James preached through Jonah, we've spent about 40 weeks in the minor prophets. We're now at the end of Malachi. We're at the end of the Old Testament. And this is a perfect time of year to be talking about the end of something. It's kind of symbolically the end of spring with Memorial Day tomorrow. It's the end of the school year. Graduations have happened and are happening, and it is big changes for a lot of people. On Friday evening, we had Lily's graduation at Valley Christian, and in the salutatorian speech, she talked about the difference between a graduation and a commencement. She encouraged her fellow students to look at this as more of a commencement Than a graduation, although it still is a graduation, is an end to something. But she said a commencement is a beginning of a new thing. It's a sending out. And that was a great encouragement to hear someone that age think profoundly about those things, right? This isn't just the end of, of something that we've done for all these years. This is the beginning of a new stage and to trust God and to go out into the world being sent out by him into this new stage of life. I think this is a great reminder for us as we think about transitions in this life. The end of one thing almost always means the beginning of something else. There's an anticipation of change. There's a looking forward to something that is ahead, whether it's seasons, whether it's dates on a calendar, stages of life, stages of a church life. For us, there's lots of excitement in store over the next year or so as we are making these changes with the Stevens Point church plant. There's going to be a lot of good things coming, a lot of great opportunities to trust God as we also do some hard things in letting people go and and sending people out. And we need to trust God as a church to stretch us and to grow us in this process. It's not just an, an end of something. It's a beginning of something new. So that's kind of on the horizon for us, but I also want us to think more immediately as we head into the summer, many of us will be busy with a lot of different things. Our schedules are going to fill up. And my encouragement is don't check out from church and don't check out from your own spiritual growth, right? It's easy to just say, oh, this is the time to chill, right? I've, I've put in all this hard work. Now it's time to put my spiritual life on the shelf. It's time to put church on the shelf and just coast through the summer. As we dive into the Psalms, I want to encourage you to engage in God's word that handout that we have in there with the schedule. There's a reading schedule on there. If you, if you're someone who needs some structure and you want to read through the Psalms and, and meditate through the Psalms each week, there's a listing of different Psalms that you can read through do that. As we look at our topic of a praying church and we read through the book and we engage in our summer co- conversations, come and be engaged, engage with God's people, engage with the Lord. So that's my my encouragement and my plug for you for the summer. But before we get there, before we dive into the Psalms, we need to finish up Malachi. I think a good phrase that might summarize Malachi is so close, but so far away. God has been promising restoration, the restoration of his people after the exile. There are signs that things are moving in the right direction with the people coming back to the land with the temple being rebuilt, with the priesthood being reinstated. But despite all of that, all is not well. Pastor James walked us through the first two chapters last week as we saw symptoms of spiritual decline. Despite the fact that, that things were going in the right direction, in some ways, the external changes were not matched by the internal changes that God was looking for, that internal heart change. So the Lord sent Malachi as a covenant enforcer. We've talked about that. The the prophets came to enforce uh, God's covenant and something we haven't really dove into and we don't really have time to to dive into. But Malachi uh, probably has the most connections with Deuteronomy, which is kind of the the book of the covenant, the the renewing of the covenant document that kind of summarizes the whole Pentateuch. Malachi has the most connections with Deuteronomy of all the minor prophets. So Malachi is coming as that covenant enforcer to say, this is what God asks of his people and be reminded of those things. So he came with the message, this message from the Lord in the form of six disputations. The pattern that we see in, this, in these disputations is that God comes with a charge to his people and his people come back with a question of the Lord and We can kind of see in some of these, maybe there's a a genuine question and some of them, maybe there's a little bit of sarcasm or cynicism in the way they ask these questions of the Lord. And then God answers his people. God genuinely answers his people. And then there is an application of what they are to do. So this is a really great pattern that we see here. Um, Last week, we looked at the first three disputations. This week, we're going to be looking at the second half. And this, this is something we've pointed to, especially when the, we're in the Old Testament, we, we talk about this some, this is a chiastic structure. So you can think about it as like a, a sideways pyramid. So it's like A, B, C, and then C, B, A. So it has this pattern of going one way, and then there's a middle point. So you could have A, B, C, maybe there's one middle point, and then it goes back to B, A, and that whatever that C is, that's the, that's the pinnacle. That's the thing that is to be highlighted. Um, you can't really do it. uh, vertically on on paper you know so it's we see it kind of that horizontal way Um, but here it's a b c c b a because there's six disputations so disputations one and six mirror each other two and five mirror each other and then three and four mirror each other so we're going to be starting today in the second half of these and kind of that that middle section we're going to be working from the inside out and this structure is going to help emphasize the need for god's people to get right with him and to not continue to slide into spiritual decline so let's look at that then and as we do that look at that structure i want us to consider the question both for the original audience of malachi in the fifth century bc and then us here today the question i want us to think about is whose side are you on whose side are you on We can't just read this today as a set of accusations against an ancient people. It is that, of course, but it's not only that. We must be able to see ourselves in this text. As the Church of Jesus Christ in 2023, we must be able to see ourselves in this text. And we must see that though some of these external struggles of God's people here at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi were definitely specific to their time and place, the internal struggles that they had to trust God and to remain faithful to him in a hostile world. Those do not change. Those are things that we still struggle with today. And the good news for us today has, as has always been true for the people of God is that God is faithful, that he will fulfill his promises to his people. So as we consider this, whose side are you on question we are going to do so with this reminder of God's faithfulness to his promises kind of as this overarching structure of these three disputations here at the end of Malachi, the second half of Malachi. In each of these disputations, we're going to see the grace and the mercy of God to his chosen and beloved people highlighted. So if you're taking notes, there's a whole back page there on the back of your worship guide if you're you're a note taker. We're going to see three things. The first is that God promises to purify his mixed up people. This is from 2.17 to 3.5. God promises to purify his mixed up people. So again, we're working from the inside out here in these disputations. Number four here mirrors number three, which we saw last week in two chapter two, verses 10 through 16. And what did we see in that disputation? It was an issue of the purity of God's people. They were guilty of profaning the covenant and the sanctuary because of their marriages to foreign Wives and in their flippant divorces. These were external issues of God's people getting mixed up with things that would draw them away from their devotion to the Lord. And their inability to discern between righteousness and wickedness in their most sacred human relationships, that was symptomatic of an even deeper issue, which we see here at the beginning of this fourth disputation in chapter two, verse 17. It begins with this charge from the Lord through Malachi that they have wearied him with their words, followed by their question, how have we wearied him? Now, when you think of someone being wearied with words, you might think of parents being on a long road trip with their kids. The question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Or where's the next stop? I have to go to the bathroom for the third time in the last half hour. That is wearying. (laughs) But here it's probably not a problem of repetition. It's a problem of their accusation against God. This is like the kids saying at the end of the family vacation, when the parents have spent their money and their time and all of their emotional energy, and you pull into the driveway and you get in the house and you unpack and the kid says, you never do anything for me. And you're like, what? What? Are you kidding me? Not speaking from experience. That's a hypothetical. I was probably that kid. But the accusation here against God is that he doesn't care about evildoers. In fact, his people stoop so low as to suggest that God delights in those who do evil. And they cynically ask here at the end of verse 17, where is the God of justice? Is God not the one who said in Isaiah 5:20, "Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter?" God does not have a problem here. The people have a problem. Their external lives have been so mixed up with sin and the inability to to distinguish between what the Lord has commanded And what they are doing for their own pleasure, that they can no longer distinguish between what is good and what is evil. The questioning here and the cynicism is a weariness to the Lord that he will properly deal with. That's what we're going to see in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, how the Lord is going to deal with his people. God promises here in chapter 3 to send his messenger to prepare the way for the Lord. And we'll see at the end of chapter 4 that there is a connection here with this messenger and with John the Baptist. But it's not just only speaking of a future earthly prophet who will come. The Lord himself promises that he will come. When it speaks of this messenger of the covenant in whom you delight who is coming, the Lord is speaking of himself. And then the Lord hits them with this penetrating question in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Will you faithless people who doubt my love for you and you who bring your polluted sacrifices and you priests who offer these polluted sacrifices and you who marry foreign wives and get ensnared by their false gods. able to endure on and to stand on the day of the lord's coming and of course the answer is no at least not on their own but god will as he has promised to do god will deal with their evil and their wickedness the imagery here is shocking compares god to a refiner's fire or to a fuller's soap God is going to melt away the impurities. He's going to cleanse his people of their filth so that their previously tainted offerings will now be righteous and pleasing to the Lord. This purifying imagery here continues when the Lord declares in verse five, that he will swiftly draw near in judgment against those who are covenant breakers. And it lists seven things here. Seven is kind of this whole number in, in the old Testament that kind of this, symbol of completion or fullness. There are seven things that are listed here that the Lord is going to bring judgment against sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker and his wages and who oppress the widow and the fatherless, those who thrust aside the sojourner and those who do not fear the Lord. God is going to deal with all of those people and all of those things he will answer the false accusation that he is not a God of justice. He will purify his people and he will punish evildoers on the day of his coming. So that's the fourth disputation. God promises to purify his mixed up people. The second thing we'll see is that God promises to return and to bless his stingy people. God promises to return and to bless his stingy people. This is chapter three, verses six through 12. Okay. Are you ready? Brace yourselves. The pastor is about to talk about tithing here. Okay. Just so you know, I don't have a problem talking about money. I've been asking people for money for about 23 years. Well, actually I've been asking people for money my whole life (laughs) been asking my mom for money uh, my whole life, but I've been formally in a ministry context asking people for money for 23 years Six weeks after I got saved in college, I went on a mission trip to Alaska. I had no idea what I was doing. Someone helped me write a prayer letter and sent it out, raised some support to go on that trip. Uh, We spent 10 years, obviously, in China as missionaries, raising support that whole time, raised funds for the church plant. So I have no problem uh, talking about money, not shy to do that. And... If you've been here a lot, you know that we don't talk about money here a lot. So if this is your first time with us and you're like, all this church does is talk about money, just ask somebody who's here. We rarely talk about money. But we do give updates at our congregational meetings about budget things. And when the Bible addresses money, we're going to talk about money. But we're not going to go cherry pick a bunch of verses to make you guys feel guilty and, and make you give more. This is also not a warning and a... A kind of reminder, hey, guys, we're planting a church in Stevens Point and sending people out and we're losing a bunch of people, so you better step it up. We're not trying to do that, not trying to guilt trip anyone. Just like the issue in chapter one with the offerings of polluted sacrifices, this is ultimately a heart issue. I'm not going to get into all the nuances today of the Old Testament ties and the many different requirements and the different percentages Also, just a reminder that there is no specific New Testament command to give 10% of your gross income to your local church. But a reminder that Jesus did talk more about money than he talked about any other topic. And like most of his teaching, there is an outward expression of an inward reality that's really the issue. So as we read Malachi, remember that. This is about our hearts. It was about their hearts. Paul talks about giving in 2 Corinthians 8 when he describes the generosity of the churches in Macedonia who overflowed with the wealth of generosity despite their afflictions. He says that they gave beyond their means and that they also gave their very selves to the Lord and to Paul as, and his companions for the work of the Lord. Paul calls their sacrificial giving an act of grace, and he urges the Corinthians to likewise excel in this act of grace. Then he ultimately points to Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for their sakes, indeed for our sakes, Jesus became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. Obviously, this is not speaking about earthly riches, as we'll see here in Malachi. This isn't a guarantee that God will make you rich if you give more money to the church. In fact, it is, as with everything, a heart issue. This is clear in 2 Corinthians 9 when Paul goes on to talk about sowing bountifully and reaping bountifully instead of sowing and reaping sparingly. He says in verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. At the end of the day, you should not give to the church and to the work of the Lord out of a sense of duty or compulsion, but you should give cheerfully. So let's come back to our fifth disputation here in Malachi 3. What was going on here? First, we need to see God's mercy and long suffering despite his people's sin. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Despite their sin, despite their rebellion, God does not abandon his people. He does not leave them to wallow in their sin and misery. We see here in verse 7 the same call that we saw at the beginning of Zechariah. The Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. That's the charge here from the Lord in this fifth disputation. And how do their people respond? Typical. They ask the question, how? How shall we return to you? Probably asked kind of snarkily and insincerely. God then tells them exactly how they can return to him by answering their question with another question and then an accusation. The question in verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. God then responds and says, or they respond and say, how have we robbed you? And God says, in your tithes and offerings. So he answers again by accusing the entire nation of robbery and their tithes and offerings. Verse nine, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The problem here is that the pure worship of God based on what God has commanded to his people was being corrupted by their stinginess. They were withholding the very requirements that were necessary for the priests to carry out their duties. And, for the, and because of that, the whole nation was suffering. God then commands them in verse 10 to bring the full tithe. And he even tells his people to put him to the test. Will I not do what I have promised to do? Will I not bless you and provide for you? In fact, the Lord promises that he will open the very windows of heaven and pour down a blessing that he will rebuke, And remove the devourer of their crops. And don't miss verse 12 then. This is really the purpose of this all. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is tied up with a major theme throughout all of Malachi. That the nations will see. The nations will see and they will call the people of Israel blessed And their land will be a land of delight. Do you see this, church, in relation to this topic? Our generosity is not about us. It's not about some prosperity gospel garbage that says, if you just give more of your money to the church, God's going to bless you. You'll be driving that Mercedes. You'll be living in that fancy house out on the lake. You'll be able to maybe get your private jet, right? It's not what this is about. That's not the message of the church. That's not the message of the gospel. First of all, that emphasis is completely individually focused. It's this idea of me giving so I can get something in return. The focus here, the focus in our churches should be the corporate aspect. The work of the church is not paying my salary and James's salary. The work of the church is not keeping the lights on so we have a place to gather those things all are true and they're necessary but they're completely secondary the focus is on the church being able to do the work of ministry that god has called us to do so that the nations i.e. the surrounding community in oshkosh and beyond will call us blessed that this place where we meet will be a place of delight and refreshment for weary souls It's about the glory of God through and through. And not just that we would be and do those things here, but that those blessings would extend to the nations. In Numbers chapter 18 and verse 26, the Levites were commanded to give a tithe of the people's tithes back to the Lord. It was called the tithe of the tithe. And we practice this as a church. We are a tithing church, we give 10% of all of our internal contributions back to those who are serving the Lord, both at home here and abroad. We prayed earlier in the service for those that we support as a church. That work would not be possible without your faithful and your cheerful giving. So This is not just something that's happening out there that we are not connected with. We're very much connected with this work. But even then, it's not about Livingstone Church, and it's not about us meeting our budget. It's about the glory of God being proclaimed to the nations. So what's the application here? Well, I want you guys to all come down, take your commitment card, go back home, pray about it, feel guilty, come in. No, we're not doing that, right? That's not what this is about. But I will send you home with a bigger challenge. The question Am I robbing God? I'm not just talking about your money, your treasure. We can think about this in terms of the three T's. We can think about our time and our talents and our treasures. Are you and I, are we as God's people making the most of what we've been given? Are we being good stewards of what we as 21st century Americans have been so ridiculously blessed with? This is a question of discipleship. It's a question of obedience to the Lord. We all have areas where we need to return to the Lord. The word literally here in the Hebrew is repent, turn back to the Lord. As we evaluate our lives in the light of God's mercy and grace, May we be reminded that God promises to return and to bless his stingy people. Now let's look at our final section. Chapter 3, 13 through 4, 3. God promises to remember and spare those who serve and fear him. God promises to remember and spare those who serve and fear him. The sixth disputation here mirrors the first disputation about God's love where God declared his covenant love and faithfulness to a people who questioned God's love for them. There in the first disputation God reminded them of his gracious electing love for Israel and that he made a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. That theme is picked back up here. The Lord's charge is verse 13 your words have been hard Against me, says the Lord. The people respond then with their typical question, how have we spoken against you? And again, God answers, repeating their accusations against him back to them in verses 14 and 15. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Essentially here, they are saying, why should we waste our time and our talents and our treasures in the service of God when all we get is hatred and mockery from the world around us? Why should we keep going? Why should we keep doing this when it's so difficult? They point to those who do evil and not only get away with it, but appear to prosper as they test God. And they escape. Now this question of the prosperity of the wicked is something that the psalmists wrestle with, especially Psalm 73, which is one of my favorite psalms. I'd encourage you to go back later today and, and read through Psalm 73, take some time to meditate on it. The psalmist begins, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Begins with this lofty praise of God and his goodness, but very quickly, His tone changes right away in verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogance. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, the psalmist looks out around him and says, what is going on? God, I'm sitting here trying to live for you, trying to be faithful for you to you and look around at all these people who don't give a rip. And they're just, everything's fine right at least on the surface it looks like everyone is prospering but then he goes on to describe how the wicked get away with their sin even to the point uh later on in the psalm he describes how the the wicked say how can god know is there knowledge in the most high so it's not just that they're doing stuff and apparently appearing to get away with it they're actually saying what's god gonna do he doesn't care right he doesn't know This is the height of arrogance and defiance of the Lord. And we see this when we look at the world around us, right? As God's people. And we, like the psalmist, say, what's going on? God, why is this happening? And after some more lamenting of the state of things, notice what the psalmist does. And I love this. I think this is is probably one of the most beautiful, I think, Ephesians 2, 4, the but God is probably the best, like, transition point in all of scripture but i think this is this is right up there starting in verse 18 but when i thought to understand this how to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task and here's the word until okay don't miss this word until i went into the sanctuary of god then i discerned their end truly you set them in slippery places You make them fall in ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The question, whose side are you on, really comes to the forefront here. And we see that those who spoke against the Lord in Malachi and who accused him of injustice in chapter 2, were not the only ones represented among the people of God. There was another contingent, a remnant of those who feared the Lord, those who said it is not in vain to serve God. Those who went into the temple of God and worshiped God and saw, oh yeah, now I see what the end is of those who do not serve God and who do not fear God. God will deal with them. The names of those, this remnant who feared the Lord, their names were recorded in a book. Notice what the Lord says of them in verses 17 and 18. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, a great theme that we see throughout scripture, God calling his people his treasured possession. We see that in 1 Peter 2 as well. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The line in the sand is drawn quite clearly here. And it goes back to the question in, Chapter 3, verse 2. Who can endure? Who can stand in the day of the Lord? This imagery of the refining work of the Lord and on the day of his coming, it is what is seen here in the first three verses of chapter 4. There are two destinies awaiting mankind. You will either be among those who experience the fire of his judgment and are reduced to ashes and stubble, or as we see in verses 2 and 3, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now we have to be careful here in reading this. We have to be reminded that God is the judge. He is the punisher of the arrogance and the evildoer. He is the one who burns to ashes. When it speaks here in verse 3 of those who tread down the wicked and that the wicked will be ashes under the soles of their feet, it is because God has judged justly. And his people's rejoicing here, like calves leaping from the stall, will happen in the context of the wicked being judged. We might say here that this is a picture of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. From chapter one being played out in God's judgment. Now, the point here, I believe, is to not buy into the lie that it is in vain to serve God. Though it might be difficult and frustrating to see the prosperity of the wicked, we must remember that God will make a distinction. And we will not only see that distinction on that day, but we will tangibly experience it as God triumphs over his enemies. Now, I admit that this is a hard truth. There's a lot to chew on here in this passage and in this this topic. But it's also the encouragement that we need on this side of the ultimate coming day of the Lord. The original audience here was reminded again of the coming day of the Lord as Malachi closes with these last three verses. This is essentially here a sum of the whole book. In verse 4, it says to remember the law and the statutes and the rules given to Moses. This is kind of a summary and a reminder of Disputations 1 to 3. There was an obedience to God and to his ways that was expected of the people in their worship of God. When God's ways were abandoned, we saw the pollution of the priesthood and the pollution of the people's worship. Verses four, 5 and 6 then summarize Disputations 4 through 6 and how the people were to prepare themselves for the coming day of the Lord. This promised coming of Elijah here, who comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord, points to John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for Jesus. Verse 6 is quoted in Luke 1.17, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah in the temple and told him of John's birth. John the Baptist would be the final Old Testament prophet. The final earthly messenger who would declare the word of the Lord to the people of God in preparation for the arrival of the prophet. The one, as we saw in the children's message in Hebrews 1, through whom God has spoken to us in these last days. Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. The Old Testament then ends with a warning here in this last part of verse 6. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And we are meant to feel the weight of these concluding words. We are to consider as we read this, the question again, whose side are we on? Will we be among those on the receiving end when God comes to strike the land with a decree of utter destruction? Or will we be the blessed nation, like we saw in chapter 3, verse 12, who will be a land of delight The dividing line is clear. And what is the line? Again, it's the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only is the life of Jesus the literal dividing mark of human history in our calendars, right? BC and AD, which is just kind of mind-blowing in and of itself. But Jesus and where you stand with him is the dividing marker between all human relationships. It's sometimes the dividing marker Among families, it's a dividing marker among closest relationships. And I wish this was easier. I wish people didn't have to experience rejection from those closest to them because of their devotion to Jesus. But Jesus promised in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, this is a hard message, but it is a fitting message to wrap up our series in the Minor Prophets, where God has continually called to his people to return to him, to be faithful to him. This doesn't work. This doesn't come from us working harder, trying harder to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to try to please God, to try to bring offerings and sacrifices that are pleasing to him on our own. It comes from looking to the son of God who loved us and laid down his life for us on that cross. So brothers and sisters, let us look back to that cross where the dividing line was clearly drawn and let us receive and rest upon Christ alone for our salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And then let us look forward to the day of the Lord that theme that has been so front and center throughout the Minor Prophets. And may we confidently say, along with the words that we are about to sing, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen.